If you would, now stand with me in reverence for God's Word. We're going to read, we're actually going to start in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and then we're going to continue on. So John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, and then we'll continue on to 3. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about a man, for himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Now can a man be born when he is how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it, is go, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you so much and thank you for your Word. We thank you that you come to us, that you actually have come down from heaven and you have lived the life that we were meant to live and you have also died the death that we deserve to die for the penalty of sin. Lord, thank you for that gracious gift through your son Jesus. Lord, today I ask that you help us understand this passage. You give us the ability to see, as Nicodemus is asking this, this, this purposeful and prominent question of the Christian faith, how might we be saved? Lord, be with us as we try to understand and, and find the assurance that your son gives us and that the Spirit provides through us as a guarantee of our salvation. Lord, be with us as we process again this truth. We are grateful for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we begin, I really want to uh, uh, start with and really only briefly address the first part, or, or I guess the last part of chapter 2. And the reason why I only want to do it briefly is because it really serves as a bridge between two really fantastic accounts of Jesus, which the Apostle John has recorded for us. Last week, David walked us through the time when Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. He was at the celebration of Passover, and when we got to the temple, he realized that it had become more of a marketplace than a place of worship. Jesus then, rightly and justly, begins to drive out the animals as well as the merchants from that temple's courtyard. And this not only fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, but it challenges us to consider our own hearts. It challenges us to ask, what might Jesus be desiring to drive out of us or even away from us? And how might then we respond in faith to this wise work in which God is doing in our life? When we're faced with truth, this is the question we have to ask. When we are faced with truth, like Nicodemus in our passage, when we are faced with truth, what is our response? How do you respond when you are presented with the truth? We all, we, all have, we all have 
sorry, we have all kinds of proofs that Jesus is who he says he is. We have all sorts of ways to prove that Jesus actually is who the Bible says that he is, and so did the Jewish people. If you read chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, again, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Again, I'm only going to briefly address this part of the passage, but look at what John is saying. Many of those people believed that Jesus was something special. Many people saw the signs that Jesus was doing, and many believed, and their belief came out of came about because of the many, if you look at it, signs that he was doing. Signs, that's plural, and that he was doing. That's continual. So Jesus was continually doing some sort of miracle and, and continually doing it as he was amongst the people, amongst God's people. So Jesus, and what we know about John is that he wrote down a whole lot of other miracles, but he didn't write them all down. People were wowed by Jesus' miracles and they believed in his name, but Jesus it says, didn't entrust himself to them. They believe, but he didn't entrust himself to these people because Jesus doesn't judge us by our external actions or our lip service. He doesn't judge us by our external actions or our lip service. It's not simple profession. He just judges our hearts. Jesus judges our hearts. Jesus doesn't just see all the people. John says that Jesus knew all the people. He knows our hearts. What he's saying is that their actions or their professions of belief, like our actions and our professions of belief, are not what validates Jesus as the Christ. We are not able to validate that Jesus is the Christ. He is who he is regardless of the sincerity of our faith. Regardless of the sincerity of our faith. And that should comfort us. That should comfort us. And why does that comfort us? It's because we all all of our faith falters from time to time. If it was based on the sincerity of our faith, then we would lose it constantly. We do not validate that Jesus is who he says he is. And there's an enormous gap between knowing Jesus as God and trusting in his work as God. Knowledge of how we are saved isn't enough. We must, in fact, be saved, which is what this bridge teaches us about. Last week, we saw how much God hated sin as he was cleansing the temple, right? He couldn't stand the fact that people were, were going against what God had, had laid forward for them. And we understand that God can also provide us with new life. And that's seen through Jesus' proclamation and evidence of the resurrection. And then there's this bridge, as I'm calling it in verse 23 and 25, that shows us that salvation happens only by genuine saving faith. God hates sin, And for us to have salvation, we must have genuine saving faith, which takes us to the answer for the question that we all have to wrestle with in chapter 3, how then are we saved by faith? If God hates sin, and we need salvation, and it takes genuine faith, then how in the world are we saved by faith? Once again, let me set the scene as we have continually walked through this narrative through through the gospel of John. So we already know that Jesus was in Jerusalem, right? 
If you've been following along in this series, you know the Gospel of John. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the Passover feast. Passover is this celebration or this festival which God, uh, which sorry, recalls God's mercy and grace by remembering or commemorating God's rescue of his people, the people of Israel, from their enslavement to Israel, right? You can read more about, read more about that in the book of Exodus. So Jesus wasn't traveling, right? Oftentimes, maybe, and maybe it's just me, but I often imagine Jesus walking down the road having these conversations. Jesus wasn't traveling. He wasn't walking. He was in the city. He was at the city participating and worshiping God with the rest of God's people, with the rest of Israel. And then at one night during the festival, Nicodemus, a very intelligent man, in fact, a very highly regarded man who's a Pharisee, and not just a Pharisee, but a member of the Sanhedrin, comes to him. The Sanhedrin weren't just theologically wise men. They also ruled over the Jewish people. They ruled the Jewish nation. They were sort of like the government, if you want to look at it that way. So trying to understand why this man with such seeming integrity or reputation coming to Jesus, we all ask the question, why? Why is this man going to Jesus? Why did he go to Jesus? Well, in part, it's, it's nice to notice when we see this moment happen, it's, it's nice to see that when Jesus is shown proclaiming the gospel, he's awfully, often doing it within a gospel conversation. He's often just having a conversation with somebody. It's not some sort of major argument. Jesus is simply speaking with Nicodemus. And the feel of the conversation, at least to me, seems friendly. Therefore, it's helpful to know that we too can simply have a conversation to share the gospel. We don't have to have some sort of contrived ideal or some sort of process to go and and, and trick somebody into some sort of gospel conversation. We can just share with our coworkers. We can just talk with our family members. We can just strike up a conversation with our neighbors. We see Jesus doing the same thing. But John also says that this man this Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, in regards to this, there's some different opinions out there. Some, I think, are just an attempt at adding some drama into the story, and that doesn't necessarily make them wrong, but it also doesn't make them right. But the two major ideas as to why John points out that fact, that Nicodemus visits Jesus in the darkness of night, are these. These are the two major ideas. One, since Nicodemus is part of this, this the Sanhedrin, he's part of this big uh, Jewish leadership, he didn't want anyone to know that he was sneaking off to talk to Jesus. And two, since both men, this is the second one, or two, since both men were leaders and therefore quite busy during the day, this was the most opportune time for them to talk, to actually have an extended conversation, Right? I'm partial to number two, which I think will make sense here in just a minute. But John also could be showing us, if we really want to press this point, why would John bring up such a non-essential point? What John could be showing us, if we really want to press this point, is that Nicodemus went to Jesus in the darkness of night because he is lost in the darkness, just like every other man without Christ. Maybe there is some sort of metaphorical theme there, because it's the truth. We are all lost in darkness without Christ. So let's read what Nicodemus says to Jesus. This is chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, 
Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What we need to know, or what we've all experienced, is that the world is full of fakers. There always has been, and there always will be someone, some man or woman who is pretending to have some sort of power, some sort of special skill, or some secret knowledge. And the reason for this, the motivation for them proclaiming these things, is so that we will follow them. You with me? There's always somebody trying to trick somebody else. We talk about how we are always being discipled. We are either being discipled by the world or by Christ. There's always somebody attempting to tell us that there's some sort of secret power, some secret knowledge that if we just follow after them, then we'll have the answer. But what Jesus does remains done. You hear that? Nicodemus is coming to Jesus because of the miracles that he's performed, and what Jesus does remains done. Nicodemus knows that Jesus is not some sort of charlatan that just put on kind of a smoke and mirrors display. What Jesus does remains done. And that's why it's unquestionable in the eyes of Nicodemus that Jesus must be from God. Nicodemus begins by calling Jesus rabbi. Okay, so rabbi means teacher. And what Nicodemus is doing here, when he calls Jesus rabbi, what he's doing is he's making an attempt to show Jesus some, some show of honor. He's trying to, 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 to be kind, to sort of flatter Jesus into, into feeling like he, he understands him. Remember, Nicodemus was a teacher. He was a, a ruler of the Jewish people. So when he addresses Jesus as rabbi, he thought that he was being kind by addressing Jesus as an equal. He's saying, you're a teacher, I'm a teacher, you know, we got this figured out. We're going to show him some sort of kindness, but we know that that's ridiculous. We know that that's absolutely foolish because we know who Jesus is, right? So we can't get ahead of the story. We have to remember that at this moment of the story, Nicodemus is simply impressed by what Jesus is doing. He's simply impressed that all the miracles that Jesus is performing, he's trying to understand why are these things happening with this man? Who is this Jesus? Nicodemus then goes on and he says, Rabbi, we know. We know. This this we is a plural form. This is a plural word. And realize that Nicodemus doesn't have a mouse in his pocket. He's not just saying we know as if it's some sort of curricular phrasing. He's talking about him and the other Jewish leaders, the ones who very well sent him to go talk to that Jesus over there. They're trying to understand what's going on. So he says, Rabbi, we, or or us, or me and the other leaders, we know that you are a leader come from God. For no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Again, there have been many other signs that have already been done by Jesus, which apparently have validated for the, Pharisee that, for the Pharisees that God's hand is somehow on Jesus. Therefore, Nicodemus goes to him and essentially says, hey, we've noticed something special about you. I'm here to validate that for you. I want you to know that we recognize that God is somehow with you, right? I'm here to tell you how good you are. But Jesus responds in a way that we probably wouldn't respond. He responds in a way that we probably wouldn't respond. Yeah, it's nice to know that, and it's comforting that Jesus is engaging in this gospel conversation, but if someone compliments us, even if it's someone we don't agree with, even if it's something we don't like, 
we feel the need to, to acknowledge that compliment. We might even go and try and compliment them on something that we might value. Oh, you like my shoes? I like your shoes. But Jesus doesn't do this here because what's funny is that we even have the ability to bond with people over the things we dislike. That sounds funny, but when you say it out loud, it's kind of sad. We bond with people over things that actually don't even matter, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the fact that Nicodemus is trying to be kind to him and making him feel like an equal to himself. He doesn't even acknowledge it. Jesus knows that Nicodemus may have seen the miracles, but Nicodemus is not able to at all see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus may have seen the miracles that Jesus performed, but Jesus knows that he is actually, it is actually, he is incapable of seeing the kingdom of God at this point. Are you, excuse me, are you with me? Do you remember the servants that we talked about in chapter 2 that uh, Jesus instructed to make the water into wine? Do you remember that moment when Jesus went? He actually uses their hands. He instructs them to do the work. He uses their hands when he turns the water into wine. But those servants didn't actually believe. They witnessed the miracle, but the Scripture doesn't say that they believed. Only the disciples believed. Every one of us wants to see a miracle. We want to see a miracle. The world prays for miracles, right? That's why the non-believers come to the Christians and say, hey, my aunt is sick, please pray for her. They want to see a miracle. We want to see the miracle. If I would just see this or that, if I could just experience some form of healing, then I would believe. But it's not the miracles that save us. It's Jesus Christ alone that rescues us. Miracles don't save us. Jesus Christ does, and it only happens through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This back and forth isn't an attempt to make Nicodemus seem stupid, right? We can't obviously think that. Nicodemus, we already know, is some sort of wise man. He's obviously a a logical man. So, of course, he doesn't actually believe that Jesus is trying to say we have to shrink back down to the size of a baby and be born physically again. He couldn't be meaning that, but Nicodemus is asking a proper question. He is asking a proper question. He's asking, if I'm already alive, how is it that I'm to be born all over again. I'm already a man. How can I go back and relive my life? I can't turn back time. Again, Jesus answers with a statement that a theologian like Nicodemus should have understood. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Once more, we have some differing opinions on what John means here. Okay, so to begin with, Jesus says, truly, truly, which means in the original Hebrew language, really, really. 
I'm just kidding. But not really. Jesus says, truly, truly, to simply emphasize the importance of what he's about to say. It's just like when the, when the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord all, God Almighty. They're trying to emphasize, when they say holy three times, they're trying to emphasize what's important. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, here it is, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's actually the phrase born of water and spirit which causes the conversation, okay? This is a, sometimes a difficult passage, so we're going to unpack it a little bit. Some think, some think that it's linked to the physical fluids that occur during the birthing process, meaning that you have to be born physically and spiritually. But the trouble with this view, although it makes sense, it does make sense, according to D.A. Carson, the trouble with this view is that there's nowhere in ancient Jewish nor Greek and Roman literature that explains childbirth or understands childbirth in this way. So it doesn't make sense. What we would have to do to get to that point is infuse our modern understanding of the medical process or our modern beliefs, again, to get to where that belief is in this passage. Others, they think it says that you must be baptized in water like we do, and that you also have to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So both views have two different sets of births. Now, the issue with this view is that then the action of baptism now does something more than it's meant to do. And it makes the claim that it not, it's not even able or not even, even enough to accomplish what this view says that it does. Back in chapter 1, we already learned this, right? Back in chapter 1, when we were talking about John the Baptist and how Jesus was baptized, at that point, we understood that water baptism is simply a sign of repentance, right? We are identifying with death, with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's a sign of repentance, and that Jesus is the only one who baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we already know from chapter, from chapter 1, right? This is just a sequential order that John is laying out for us. From chapter 1, we already know that the actual baptism of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can impart new life to us. It cannot be baptism. It cannot be the waters. There is no amount of water in the world that can transform your spiritual condition. Period. There's no amount of water that can affect your spiritual condition. Therefore... Being born of, of water and the Spirit couldn't have to do with our physical baptism. Also because Nicodemus would have no idea what Jesus is talking about. He'd have no idea. Jesus, again, is having this gospel conversation with this guy. Why would he reference something that Nicodemus has no understanding? Because there's nowhere in the Old Testament that it talks about baptism regeneration. Nowhere. As well, in verse 10, which we're going to get to next week, Jesus then rebukes Nicodemus, who's supposed to be this great teacher. He rebukes him for not understanding this very sentence, this very phrase. So it leaves us asking, okay then, what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, Jesus is expecting, again, Nicodemus, because of who he is, because he is this great theologian and teacher and ruler of the Jews, he's expecting Nicodemus to know what he's talking about because Jesus Christ is referencing the prophet Ezekiel. 
is referencing the Old Testament which Nicodemus would have known. This is Ezekiel 36, verse 24 through 27. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. Amen. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus causes the change and he affects the change. This new heart, this this new spirit, this new life is what cleans us up. We're all sitting here with sin on our mind and, and, and recognizing that we aren't as clean as, as Christ calls us to be. And it's this new heart, this new spirit, this new life is what cleans us up. It also, though, empowers us to see the truth and allows us to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what Nicodemus and Jesus are talking about. This spirit is this transformation and what gives us the ability to see truth, which, remember, Nicodemus does not quite understand yet and gives us the ability to enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus then goes on and tells Nicodemus that you cannot do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. You can't do this on your own. It doesn't matter, Nicodemus, how wise you are. It doesn't matter how long you've served on the Sanhedrin. It doesn't matter how closely you keep this law, which he does an amazing job at, better than any of us. You cannot do this on your own. How can a man or a woman produce someone that lives for God when all we do is seek our own glory? That's the reality. How are we able to produce someone who lives for God when all we do is seek our own glory on our own? All we do is produce little idolaters. That's all we do. We just reproduce little idolaters. Flesh will only reproduce flesh, but the Spirit will bring about new spirit. The Spirit will bring about new spirit. Think about what Nicodemus is hearing. Again, Nicodemus is this, this, this man who follows the law. He thinks he is, he is simply walking after the, the Lord. He is doing everything possible. He is a righteous man in his, own, in his own shoes. But think about what this man Nicodemus is hearing for the very first time in his entire life. For the first time, this learned man is actually experiencing the truth. For the first time in his life. Jesus goes on, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then Jesus gives him one of the most practical examples of the Holy Spirit's power and work. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. For a moment, just think about what this metaphor is trying to say. Think about what it's saying. Can you define the wind? Are you able to point to the wind? The only way that you know where the wind is is because you're able to recognize its effects. The only way that you can identify where the wind is is because you're able to recognize its effects. Right now, it's the season of fall. We see the wind or the leaves blowing down the street. 
You might even say we can hear the wind howling, but that wind is only, the only reason why we can hear the wind howling is because it's going through the trees or it's cascading across a building. You can't point to the wind. You can only identify its effects. And Jesus says, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If you have truly, if you have truly been born again, then you are different. There is some sort of effect that has happened, and there is no such thing as a Christian whose life is not affected by the Holy Spirit. If you are the same person you were when you supposedly gave your life to Christ, then you have a question to ask yourself. There's no such thing as a Christian that has not been affected by the Holy Spirit. Now, the easiest place to gauge this is to look at what we desire. The easiest place for us to understand, have I truly been changed, is to look at what we desire. We were at a conference this last week, and one of the speakers said something like this, what is it that you want when you want? What is it that you want when you want? What is it that motivates you? When you go on to to live your life, what kind of effect are you going for? Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, again, as we sit here and recognize that our hearts are deceitful, as the Holy Spirit enlightens our view to truly how dark our hearts are, I want you to know because of his ability, because of the empowerment, that the, the imparted life that has been given to us by the Spirit through Jesus Christ, change is possible. Change is possible. Freedom is possible. Salvation is possible. The word here translated as, again, also means from above. Therefore, Jesus is saying that you must be born from above. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be set for heaven. You must be born above in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you read Galatians 5, 16 through 25, there is this very strong list of deplorable effects from a life that is lived in darkness. And it's actually a way that we're able to identify those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it says. This strong list of deplorable actions and effects on a person's life who is walking and living in darkness, this is how we're able to identify those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the Bible. But what you'll also find, praise the Lord, what you'll also find is a list that reveals the areas of growth that is done within us by the Spirit's power. You will find a list that will show you the freedom that is available to you, which gives us assurance of our entrance into heaven. So I ask you, are you affected? Are you growing? Right? It's just the fruit of the Spirit. This is the list we've known since our childhood. If you've been raised up in the church, do you love, do you love more? Do you have a greater joy in your life? Do you rest in a, in a deeper peace? Do you have more patience with one another? Do you possess a deeper kindness? Do you search and strive for goodness and faithfulness? Are you more gentle? Do you recognize that you possess or you're working towards self-control? Being born again isn't just a way to understand that we've been justified through the, through, the, excuse me, through the cross of Christ. It's not just that we've been justified through the cross of Christ. We've also been regenerated. 
We've been made new. That's what it means to be born again, right? You remember Ezekiel. It means to be given a new heart, no longer of stone, but of flesh. Yes, we have legal standing to go before God. We're able to go to the throne at any moment, whenever we want, and speak to him as a father. But we've also been empowered by his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that has the power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and place him at the right hand of the Father. You have been changed. We have been changed because of his grace and his mercy. You've been transformed by what he has done for you. There's no way around it. Your life forever has been affected by God because the Holy Spirit has chosen to breathe his life into you, into me. Amen. Through faith, we are set free for freedom's sake. Through faith in Christ, we've been set free for freedom's sake to live our life differently. No one knows when the wind will blow, and no one knows where it comes from or where it will go, but you have not chosen God. The glorious good news of the gospel is that he has chosen you. If you would, pray with me, please. Father, we love you and we thank you. Lord, it is such a gift to understand that you have chosen us, that you have come down off of your throne and you have lived the life that we were meant to live and you died the death that we deserve to die on our behalf and you have assuaged the wrath, the justifiable wrath for our sin. Lord, thank you for giving us freedom. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit that gives us a new heart, that transforms who we truly are as enemies of you, but Lord, you give us a new identity that is secured in you, promised inheritance forever. Lord, let our hearts long for the better country that awaits us. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your church. In Jesus' name, amen.